On March 3rd, 1948, the SMU Daily Campus conducted a poll that made the front page. In big block letters, the headline reads, Students Favor Race Segregation. A majority of the 373 students polled held that the federal government shouldn't overstep their bounds. The South wasn't ready for integration. The very next year, the Daily Campus published an editorial commenting on a recent court case. Ada Lois Sipiel had just sued the University of Oklahoma Law School for denying her entry based on her race. The Supreme Court ruled that Oklahoma must provide her an education equivalent to that of her white peers. It was one of those cases that laid the groundwork for desegregation of schools across the country. Here's what an SMU Daily Campus writer had to say about it. Quote, the much-publicized cases involving Negroes and Southern universities are, quote, test cases set up by the Northern Negro interests to prove that it is constitutionally possible to install a Negro in a Southern school. The pitiful part of the situation is that these Northern Negroes do not represent the feelings of most of their Southern brothers. Legislation cannot force Southerners who have been taught segregation for generations to accept a Negro woman and allow her to sit next to them in classes. Educationally, the Negroes of the South are not equipped to attend white universities. The fact remains that there has not been enough done in the past to educate Negroes to the white level. So that was 1949. Then, in 1952, five black students enrolled in Perkins School of Theology. And then, in 1965, a student became the second black undergraduate and the first black football player in the Southwestern Conference. So what happened between students' favor race segregation and the Perkins Five, Jerry Levias in 1965? Men of goodwill. Dr. King said it takes men of goodwill to carry us into the good society. Today, I'm going to talk about some of those men. The maladjusted individuals that led to the formal desegregation of Southern Methodist University. My name is Shara Jairaja. I'm a human rights fellow at SMU. And this is Maladjusted. Being an SMU Mustang to me means that you adopted the whole spirit of the place and love the campus. Athletics is an important part of the SMU. I don't like There are some things in our nation and the world to which I'm proud to be maladjusted which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted until the good society is realized. The desegregation of SMU relied on the coordinated efforts of black students and white administrators. So that already complicates some things. But 
But with regards to SMU's desegregation, Marymon Cunningham's book title says it the best. Perkins led the way. Marymon Cunningham was appointed to be the dean of Perkins School of Theology in 1950. So the dean came in at Humphrey Lee's appointment, and he didn't come to play. He expressed upfront that he was interested in initiating the desegregation of Perkins. Then President Lee agreed. Just before his appointment, President Lee led the initiative to remove race-restrictive language in SMU's admission bylaws. Dean Cunningham's path was clear. I asked Dr. Reverend Zan Wesley Holmes about the dean. Tell me about Dean Cunningham. Dean Cunningham, he was a very open, very supportive man who really, uh, I think, helped helped the seminary, really uh, made everybody feel welcome. He he was a major player and uh, I had a good relationship with him and I appreciate him, yeah, good experience. It's really hard to overstate how incredible Perkins' desegregation was. The rest of segregated America was just starting to wrap its head around racial justice in higher education. Consider Ada Lois Scipio in the Supreme Court case that prompted that awful Daily Campus article at the top of the episode. The court found that Ada was guaranteed an equal education to her peers at OU Law School, but she wasn't actually admitted to attend. They created a whole new law school just for her. They threw together Langston University School of Law in five days just for one student. That's the incredible lengths that Southern schools were willing to go to, just to protect white students from their black peers. Then again, as we figured out in our last episode, Even the most incredible victories in our racial justice history require closer inspection. Let's hold space for everything that brought us here. James Hawkins, John Elliott, Nigel Riley, James Lyles, and Cecil Williams. They're the Perkins Five the first black students that graduated from Perkins. Let it be noted that there are two black Dallasites that enrolled before the Perkins Five, but they dropped out before graduation. I couldn't find their names. The Perkins Five were a carefully curated group of students. Dr. Cunningham said that he was searching for students who could, quote, stand the gap. And to be transparent, I don't really know what a gaffe is, but it didn't sound so good. But once they enrolled in 1952, they knew the monumental task they were undertaking. The Dean assured the Perkins Five that they were blazing a trail. Together, they agreed to set the inevitable in motion. Needless to say, the Perkins Five bore a heavy burden. For all they knew, their behavior had implications that would ripple into the future of desegregation. 
spurring it on, or even preventing it. In his book, Beyond the Possible, Cecil Williams recounts what it felt like to be one of the five. Here's some excerpts. On our first day at Perkins, Dean Cunningham called the five of us into his office to say that he was not going to rule, quote, by fiat. If a race-related problem cropped up, he wanted us to talk to him about it, then make up our own mind. There were going to be a number of historic firsts. No matter how sensitive the issue, he trusted that we would make, quote, the right decision. Something sounded a bit too amiable about this wording, but of course, we agreed. The Dean promised that no overt acts of racism would interfere with our experience, and in return, he hoped we five would promise not to upset the process of Perkins' way of teaching, which went all the way back to the school's founding in 1915. When it came to making the, quote, right decision, we knew enough to defer to the white experience when necessary. There were some hiccups in what Dean Cunningham referred to as the Perkins experiment. Notably, when one of the Perkins Five sat with a white woman in the cafeteria, she wrote home to her mom saying that it was a positive experience. In response, an overwhelming group of white moms launched a letter-writing campaign against the university. Dean Cunningham said that he and the Perkins Five mutually agreed that, quote, they realized how silly it would be to let our experiment founder on some inconsequential liberty. So they decided that henceforth they would not eat in any university dining hall except the Perkins cafeteria, unquote. I'm not sure if I'd call eating lunch an inconsequential liberty, but, you know. In the summer of 1953, some voices of dissent arose among SMU's board of trustees. By then, four of the five students were living in SMU dormitories, some with white students. So some Perkins board members got upset, but President Humphrey Lee subdued them. Then there is a voice that could not be subdued. Joe Perkins himself, the man who made it financially feasible to run a school of theology. As Dean Cunningham put it, quote, Mr. Perkins' letter was full of firm language and seemingly non-negotiable phrases. The Board of Trustees never at any time approved, get rid of the Negroes as soon as possible, under no conditions do we want to take on any others, unquote. Joe Perkins' wife eventually convinced her husband to allow them to finish their education, but they clearly weren't intent on admitting more students. So there were letter-writing campaigns. There was opposition from Perkins himself. But what was really striking to me is that Cecil said, quote, I believed that getting an A in this class would help show the world that Negroes were equal to every task that whites could place before them, unquote. 
The Daily Campus article at the top of the episode expressed that segregation was self-perpetuating. Sure, the editorial writer thought, it's a shame that black Americans in the South had faced centuries of systemic barriers to the education valuable in white America. But they couldn't imagine another world, so they thought we should do nothing at all. Something like that. Cecil restructured his life and his thoughts to earn his education in the eyes of white America. And to be frank, I bring that up because that idea affects students of color today. When you're the only person who looks like you in a room, you can feel like the representative of your race. It's hard to confront stark systemic barriers like segregation in hindsight, but we still don't adequately confront these intangible factors that can make students of color question their every move. But then again, I have the language to talk about these issues because Cecil Williams experienced them first. He and the Perkins Five led the way. They confronted well-meaning but imperfect white people like Dean Cunningham that both complicated their experience and made it possible for them to attend in the first place. And for what it's worth, Cecil's maladjustment bore immediate results. This is how Dr. Reverend Zan Wesley Holmes responded when I told him about the Perkins protest. I, I did not know about the Perkins story. I do know this after I graduated and after I became a pastor and there's an annual Perkins lecture at the Perkins that they sponsored at the church they belonged to in Wichita Falls, Texas. And they invited me and the whole family into their home and uh, I was the first African-American from Perkins to be invited in the Perkins lectures. That was a four-day experience. And that family, I got to know that family, so things have, have, re have really changed. But I didn't know that. I, I'm not surprised by, you know, what you said happened early on. I know that, I know that somebody had to pave the way and that it was not easy for, for those who there before me. Perkins really did lead the way. Perkins students laid the foundation of racial justice consciousness at SMU for people like Paula Lane Jones and Jerry Levias. Twelve years after the Perkins Five set foot on campus, the first black student entered SMU's undergraduate body. Her name is Paula Elaine Jones, and she has never responded to SMU's requests to open contact. However, I had the honor of interviewing our second Black undergraduate and one of our most prestigious alumni. My name is Jerry Levias, uh, SMU graduate, 1969, uh, when a lot of you weren't even thought of. I was a marketing major and a minor in broadcast film arts. And I played uh, football at SMU. Jerry Levias. He started attending in 1965, a year after Paula. Throughout our interview, 
Jerry emphasized that he identified as an SMU student first. However, he's best known for his athletic background. He was the first black football player in the Southwestern Conference. Jerry was recruited by Coach Hayden Fry. Definitely someone that Jerry would classify as a man of goodwill. I don't know if you know the story about what happened with Coach Fry and uh, Willis Tate. Hayden Fry was an assistant coach at Arkansas, and he got a chance to become a head coach at SMU. The Southwest Conference was big. When they offered him the job, he took it on uh, one specific reason. He said, if you let me recruit a black athlete. So can you imagine a young man, 32, 35 years old, going to a university like Southern Methodist University and saying, this is the only way I'll take the job. But let's get something straight. Jerry didn't know about Coach Fry's stipulation. Jerry had no idea that he would be the one to break the Southwestern Conference's color barrier. If Coach Fry had have talked about breaking down barriers and doing this, there was no way. But he never did speak of that. So when the newspaper came out, Negro Science with Southwest Conference first and all this kind of stuff, I'm going, oh, wow, what have I done? The, the next day that I signed, we had a, a news conference at one of the hotels in Beaumont. And when it came out and, and the guy asked, <clears throat> How's it, how does it feel to be the first Negro to play in the Southwest Conference? And I'm going, uh, good. But then after saying, you know, sweat started dripping down and, and all this kind of stuff, I was... <laughs> My dad said to me, because I was going to change my mind and go to UCLA where my cousins were, my dad said, you gave that man your word, and your word is your bond. You have to live up to it. And that's what it was. With the Perkins Five, um, when I'm researching them, they were told at every step of the process, you are the first, you're going to be the reason that this school changes, that black people can start attending. But that's incredible that you signed on without knowing. No, I didn't know. I mean, because I, I, did, I had never heard of SMU. But, okay, once you get over that shocking hurdle, what happens when someone inadvertently signs up to desegregate a predominantly white institution and an entire football conference? Every morning, serenity to prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And the idea of not being intimidated and knowing who I was wasn't treated very well. Um, matter of fact, teammates, you know, you would hear the N-word often. Uh, and, you know, uh, first couple of practices, I got the wedge vertebra and three crack ribs. And those were not from playing, but was after the whistle was over, people were trying to hurt me. So it was it was a real, real tough first year. 
I also had a yellow streak in my back. You know, I was scary. <laughs> I was scared to get hit. Sometimes I would I, <laughs> I talk to the people and I tell them, I said, I just ran from everybody. You know, the guys on my team is all, everybody white. <laughs> so I'm just running to save my life. I got 21 white guys chasing me. <laughs> so I just made a joke out of it, you know, new teammates, but you know, only black guy. I just tried to look at the color of their jerseys and I, and that was it. So I tried to make, it, make a game out of it, but, but the one thing that happened was my belief in my fellow man and my belief in God, period. Despite all those hardships, Jerry constantly highlighted the bright sides of his experience. Sure, his white roommate immediately transferred upon finding out he had a black roommate, but Jerry relished the extra space. Though his peers frequently used the N-word, they gave him the tools to prepare for a racist world. So the education I got, uh, I, I got an education on life uh, and education on people. And that was most of what was important for me to learn how to fit in with the surroundings there, learning to adjust to my environment. And believe me, what an adjustment it was. Jerry's choice of wording here is really important. He adjusted to the situation around him. And when he was so susceptible to physical and emotional violence, that's extremely necessary. But it goes to show that maladjustment holds nuance. One can slip into maladjustment by being the only person of their identity in a room. One can also be maladjusted by picking up the bullhorn, leading the protest chant, forming an interest group, joining a legacy of protest set up by black athletes like Jesse Owens, Colin Kaepernick, Carlos and Thomas Smith and all those different guys. I don't know if you remember them, 68 Olympics, Black Powell. Yeah. And we've had all those people. We've had Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a lot of different people that have broken down doors. They put us in this situation where we have voice and you guys have voice. I want to talk about the concrete implications of Jerry's legacy. He and other black athletes have always occupied an interesting position in racial justice movements. And that legacy of protest is alive and well on our campus. My name is Ashton Woods. I am a senior. I'm studying mechanical engineering with a minor in law and legal reasoning, and I am on the track and field team. All right, hi, I'm Ritali. I'm a junior. I major in political science with a minor in human rights, and I am on the women's basketball team. Ashton and Bree co-founded the Black Student Athlete Committee, also known as BSAC, during the summer of 2020. They presented a list of demands to SMU athletics following the surge of the Black Lives Matter movement. Among their lists included a call for a Black mental health professional. with athletes coming and needing to be able to speak about your experience with someone who looks like you and has those same or similar experiences um, is something really, really important to us. Revised advising practices. Um, a lot of our student athletes end up majoring in sports management, which is great. Some of them are very interested in it, but um, unfortunately, some of them just didn't know what else they could do, didn't feel like anything else would fit in their schedule. 
um, or weren't equipped with the tools to be able to choose their own classes, um, that's not right. And a space for black student athletes. Another one was actually having a space and having more involvement with the, you know, the rest of the student body because you know, we are kind of stuck in the athletic bubble. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't feel like we're on two different islands. So that's something else that we try to push for is actually having, you know, a space. Bree and Ashton are critiquing the political machine that Jerry and the Perkins Five had to navigate to appease white people in power and prove their worth. And because of the struggles of people like Jerry, they can now use that system to advance How do you justice. Kind of see yourself within the sort of larger culture of black athletes being the leaders generating racial justice and social change. It's again kind of that double-edged sword where it can be very difficult um, to be in our position because um, we do have the politics and, and the people that we're supposed to please and things like that. But the flip side of that is that we have a very big platform. Um, and we have the ability to ask for things that may be a little more aggressive and get that audience because as much as I think the, the narrative is that we need them because we need the scholarships and we need this and we need that, they need us. And I think that what's been so instrumental in us being able to bring about change here, but also like, you know, nationwide, like black student athletes across the nation um, is really coming into that power and understanding that power and understanding that they need us. And they, it, as if you do things right and if you really take advantage of the position that you're in, you can bring about change. It's hard. Like we've already talked about, it's hard and it's slow, but you can do it. Um, and we, we have a special platform to be able to do it. Um, and so I think that's part of why we've been able to really ask for a lot and do a lot this last semester was because we, as black student athletes, like came into that power. The chant you just heard came from a protest that BSAC staged in response to the near-fatal police shooting of Jacob Blake. They came into their power, held the bullhorn, led the protest chant, Women of Goodwill. It may be different ways of coping, but it was extremely powerful to listen to Ashton and Bree next to Jerry, to see what maladjustment could and couldn't be across generations. Towards the end of our interview, with urgency in his voice, Jerry told me the steps that people of color must take in order to survive at SMU and in America. And we, as minorities, it's a lot of things we need to change. So you have to basically learn the game and learn how this country works, learn the system, the Constitution, who does what and everything. It's no use to going into uh, fighting someone with a gun and you've got a cap pistol. So I'm not talking about violence, excuse me. Right. <laughs> 
But in sharp contrast, Bree sees and criticizes the people who built this house we all live in. With the same urgency in their voices, she and Ashton told me whose burden it really is to change. I hate the fact that black people have to fix problems that we did not create. Like, I, I don't, like, the responsibility part is just, it should be, you know, on the, it should be the responsibility of the oppressors, the oppressors to, you know, you know, fix what they, what they created. But obviously that's not the case. And I think another thing is, is that, you know, everything, is usually out of, you know, reactionary rather than having the plans in place first. But then it, it's, something has to happen and then we're, we're here trying to fix it. Like, it's just, it's always a, it's always a never-ending cycle. Like, yeah, I mean, if something happens, we end up doing something, and then after a year or two, it, it kind of just slowly goes away because the momentum goes away. And then it's like, no, you guys are good. And then nothing's going on. And then something else happens. Now we're back on the same cycle. So it's just, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that that's a really important point that you brought up and I'm glad you brought it up because it's something that has come up um, in our discussions with athletics and through BSAC and something that comes um, up through Buff a lot because I think like, especially now you see a lot of um, burnout. This is like hard, gritty, exhausting work. And I think the fact that we have to do most of it is exhausting. Um, And I think that that's why it's so important to have groups like buff where you have a lot of support because it's so easy to say like i i'm tired i don't want to do this anymore i don't want to carry this burden anymore i don't want to be you know the voice of the people anymore um it can be really like disheartening to constantly feel like you're having to push for the change that really the responsibility like brie said it lies with the oppressors and here especially it lies with In my opinion, it lies with um, administration and and professors and people who have had a large hand in continuing those cycles. They should be the ones that are stepping up to break them. Um, And I think it can be very exhausting to have to feel like you're constantly the one that's having to make the calls and having to keep pushing. Dr. King said that we must be maladjusted until the good society is realized. I imagine that everyone featured in today's episode are architects of the Good Society. James, John, Nagel, James, Cecil, Zan, Jerry, Ashton, and Bree. To be sure, the Perkins Five and Jerry helped lay the foundation. However, students of color, particularly black students and particularly black women, are still burdened with imagining and constructing the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice, as Dr. King put it in his speech. Over the coming episodes, let's continue to investigate all that's changed, all that hasn't, whose burden it is to build the good society, and whose burden it is to rebuild. Next episode, let's confront Greek life.